From South Bend, Indiana, welcome to 3 Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. We had a strategy in place where we thought at that time, 10 years ago, a lot of customers are not necessarily ready yet to take printers in-house and move products into additive. And if we had a service bureau offering alongside just the sale of printers, we're going to be able to have uh, an adoption uh, path for these customers saying, okay, don't commit to, you know, buying capital equipment. That was Tali Rossman. Tali is a recognized business leader in the added manufacturing space, having worked on multiple deals throughout the sector and throughout her career. In today's episode, she shares her career journey with stops along the way at Stratasys and Xerox. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or your company are looking for materials, qualification, or general added manufacturing support, reach out to the team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. All right, Tali, thanks so much for joining the show today. Excited for ha- to have you on. Um, like we do with all our guests, we'd love to just start at the beginning, so... Um, where were you born? Kind of what were some of those early motivations or um, inspirations for you to kind of put you on the path of where you are today? Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me. Pleasure talking to you. I've been listening to a few episodes and uh, I'm really excited to be here today. So I um, yeah, am a Tel Aviv, Israel, born and raised. Uh, and I've done probably the classic Israeli route of uh, you know, high school, military service, university, and then uh, straight into work. Um, since then, the short version is I've see I've lived and worked in six different countries and three continents, and I'm now no longer just Israeli, but also German and American. Uh, the 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 trifecta, um, and uh, I've been in the additive space for about 10 years, but I didn't actually start my career in additive manufacturing. So uh, after university, I went into management consulting, um, essentially a strategic uh, advisory, working with a range of companies and a range of industries on their strategy, business, go-to-market, financial issues. So everything that has to do with the non-technology aspects of it, if you will. And through management consulting, I uh, got into the world of mergers and acquisitions, uh, so corporate development, which is mostly M&A, but also minority investments in startups and the like. And I've done it in technology companies. And then that's when Stratasys approached me and offered me to join their corp dev team. And this was, uh, as I was saying, 10 years ago when Stratasys was in the uh, heyday of uh, buying companies, investing in companies, And so I joined in the CorpDev hat to Stratasys, not really knowing what additive manufacturing is uh, and actually, you know, disguising my ignorance in the industry very well, I think, in my first few weeks as we were, as I was already plunged into a negotiation to acquire a company. Um, And yeah, I mean, pretty much uh, through that experience in Stratasys of buying companies, investing in in additive manufacturing startups, some of them are well familiar, and we can talk about them. That's how I got to know the industry, uh, fall in love with it, and have built my career in this space in the last ten years. And what was it about either consulting or kind of the 
that sort of environment cadence, what you're doing with companies appealed to you? Like what was your what was your interest in in that? Did you have a particular like thing that you were aiming to do? Did you always want to do M and A? Did you want to always work in certain sectors? Like what what was kind of the drive for you to to pursue that path? Yeah, it was interesting because I actually never had a career plan. Uh, I never had the where do I see myself in five, ten years, uh, et cetera. But um, but I knew that uh, I, I do get bored kind of quickly. And so with consulting, you're moving between um, different things, both different industries and different projects, but also you're touching on, on strategy, you're touching on sales, you're touching on product, you're touching on finance. So there's a lot of diversity and you really get to see a big, the big picture of business. Uh, and, and I think that's the thing that appealed to me the most. I feel sometimes, especially in larger companies, if you're in a specific department, you just see one aspect of the business. And I always wanted to kind of sit on the top and see how all those pieces are working together. Um, and, and, you know, and assuming you're not the CEO, certainly not when you're 25, uh, the only way to really do it is if you're in, in management consulting or in the kind of strategy corp dev types of roles. And how did you find Stratasys? Uh, so Stratasys found me, uh, which was nice because uh, honestly, I think if you told me uh, 11 years ago that I would develop a career in, in, in manufacturing, I don't think I would have believed you. Uh, that much. Um, so I was, as I was saying, working in mergers and acquisitions in a, in a company called Amdocs, which is a very large technology company. Um, and there were a lot of kind of Amdocs people who moved to Stratasys, including the person who was my boss. And he told me about this amazing thing called 3D printing. And it's, it's really great. And I should check it out. And they have a lot of money and they're really going to be acquisitive. So you know, somebody coming from corporate development, mergers and acquisitions, hearing that you're going to be able to work in a lot of deals. Um, that's pretty much the number one thing you're looking for. Uh, and so I went to visit uh, the Stratasys facility in uh, Rehovod in Israel. Um, and I saw it and I was blown away by the technology. It just, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, kind of the part being made uh you know, out of thin air. Um, and I got really excited about the technology and again, really excited just about the potential of what Stratasys was trying to do at the time, which has become the largest 3D printing company in the world by way of mergers, acquisitions, and investments in startups. And what when a company wants to grow via mergers and acquisitions, like what like from where you're sitting, like what are you trying to do? Are you trying to scout companies? Are you trying to see like on the balance sheet? How does this make economic sense? Like to someone who's like not in that world that seems kind of foreign. Like how how, how do you like how do you come in and like what's that process of like making a deal or scouting a deal look like? Yeah, great question. So it should be a combination of two things: of the financials and of the strategic fit. So the strategic fit, if you're in Stratasys. Um, for example, when we did the acquisitions of the service bureau, Solid Concepts and Harvest, which then formed SDM, and actually, interestingly enough, Stratasys in the last couple of months have been shedding some of those assets uh, that we bought, but we had, you know, parking the financials on the side for a second, which is critical. We had a strategy in place where we thought at that time, 10 years ago, a lot of customers are not necessarily ready yet 
to take printers in-house and move products into additive. And if we had a service bureau offering alongside just the sale of printers, we're going to be able to have uh, an adoption uh, path for these customers saying, okay, don't commit to, you know, buying capital equipment for high six figures, low seven figures, start off small by just moving parts. You'll see that the technology works, that the quality is there, that everything's there. You're going to get comfortable. And then when you're ready and the amount of parts you're running through the machines makes sense, oh, now you can also buy uh, these machines from us. So there was a strategic fit. And the other thing is obviously the financials have to make sense. You know, you're going to be spending money to buy these companies. You know, the revenue needs to be there. The cash flow needs to be there. The company's profitability needs to be there. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be smirking because we did spend a lot of money on buying these companies. So um, probably, you know, in retrospect, a little more than the, <laughs> than we should have. Um but that's kind of the combination is the strategic and the financial and in corporate development you're also doing two things right there's really scouting of companies um which is how i got to be really well familiar with the industry because you know when you're the person with the checkbook everybody wants to talk to you uh so you know i'd go, I'd go into the conference and it was nice but we're kind of celebrities because of uh because of the checkbook. So you, you talk to everybody and you, you create, you know, big database of companies. So, you know, based on your strategy and, you know, if we want to add metal capabilities, if we want to have service bureau capabilities, okay, here are the companies in this space. Here's to make sense. And obviously, you know, aside from, let's call it the very structured processes uh, that you usually have of, well, this is our strategy. Now let's go scout companies that meet these criteria. Then let's, approach them and start the negotiation, et cetera. There's also opportunistic, right? Certain companies that are just putting themselves up on the, on the shelf for a sale. And maybe it's not exactly, you know, the number one priority of the company, but right now there's a good opportunity to buy a good company with good technology at a reasonable price. And how do you, I mean, this probably sounds like a stupid question, but like, how do you, how do you put a number or how do you value a company? Like what, what are the, like, what's the sales price? Like when, when do you go and, and do some of these, do you have a number in mind that you're trying to negotiate to, or are you, is there like an equation that kind of. Yeah, it's uh, th there's a science and there's an art. Uh, <laughs> and art is often subjective as you can tell with some of the deals, but um, you know, but, but, but first things first, there's a lot of publicly traded companies in your industry uh, certainly more now than there were 10 years ago. Um, and so you kind of know what a reasonable valuation is based on the multiples, right? Today, if uh, you're going to look at publicly traded 3D printing companies, doesn't matter if it's Stratasys, 3D Systems, Desktop Metal, um, all the ones that are publicly traded, you can see what is the multiple. So, you know, enterprise value divided by the company's revenues, or enterprise value uh, divided by the company's EBITDA or divided, basically divided by the company's profitability or cash flow. So there are certain uh, expectations in every market. Um, and then the other thing, you know, the part of the of the art of not the science is obviously the negotiations with the other with the other side. And there's a big difference if you're coming from a position of strength, meaning the other side 
um, let's say they're not cash flow positive, they're at risk of uh, continuing to live and you're, you're coming from a position of strength, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they have other companies that have bid for them as well. And now you're in kind of a bidding process, which, um, you know, for example, and since it's been so long, we can, you know, talk about it, but we were eyeing um, Concept Laser and, and Arkham as well at the same time that GE was looking at them, right? So then you're not in a position of power and there's another player that can outbid you. Got it. Got it. And so as you could kind of started your kind of career in additive, like what, um, where did it progress from there? Like, so you see a lot of deals with Stratasys, you're seeing a lot of companies. Um, how did your perception of the industry grow? How did your um, understanding or motivation to stay in the industry like evolve over that time? Yeah, I think um, obviously the industry has a lot of potential, right? That's why you're in it. That's why I'm in it. This is why we're still seeing so many startups coming into the industry. But as of today, um, nobody has yet figured out the way to make a truly big, truly profitable uh, 3D printing company. So I think the business models are still um, need to prove themselves, right? And that's evident in the publicly traded companies. Uh, again, we're saying Stratasys, 3D Systems, do you think Fellow, it's a fun, Do you think metal. like it's a fundamental uh, flaw? So if I thought, or is it like a, <laughs> hey, there's a lot of companies, but everyone's just doing it wrong <laughs> or like they're well run or they've made mistakes or like what What do you think is the, the underlying cause if everyone's not doing well? Yeah. So when everyone's not doing well, it's to your point, which I think I think you're spot on. There's a question of, okay, maybe it's just a fundamental issue with the industry or is it, no, there's money to be made in this space. It's just for various reasons, nobody has figured it out yet. Um, I think if I thought it was the first that there's absolutely no way to make money in the industry, then, you know, I wouldn't be in it. And and certainly you're seeing a lot of very smart investors still pouring money into the industry in spite of the fact that um, the return on investment in our sector has been uh, uh, significantly worse, I would say, than the capital markets performance. Uh, and, and I think the reason they're doing it, the reason I'm... Uh, you know, committed to the additive space is because I think there is potential. I think somebody will figure it out. And kind of like a lot of other industries, it's one of those things where we're going to look back 20 years from now and, you know, we're going to see the, in retrospect, the company that, that cracked the code and we're saying, and we're going to say, oh yes, it was obvious. This is, and, you know, to, to, to get an analogy from another industry, I mean, you know, AI has been around for, for a decade and one of the companies I was involved in, um, we had an AI offering and I can tell you it, it didn't gain traction and it was losing money, et cetera. And, you know, lo and behold, November 2022, a year ago, ChatGPT came and boom, overnight, literally overnight, uh, I think what they got to a million users in five days, um, they cracked the code and within a year, less than a year of commercializing the product, they're on $1.3 billion revenue run rate, which, you know, just to put that in perspective, that's like Stratasys and 3D Systems, the two biggest companies in the industry combined. Um, so 
I think similar to that, somebody is going to figure it out in the industry. Uh, I think some of the issues were technology driven. I think some of the issues are go to market driven. Some of that is not exceptional management. And since I know most of the CEOs, I won't be naming names. Yeah. But uh, it's also hype as well, right? Like if you set expectations so high that in three years you're going to be selling a million machines, that's it's hard to overcome that. And if that's tied to a stock price or a valuation, like and the rubber meets the road, it's like it, it, it's it's hard to achieve that sometimes, right? It's a is there a chicken the egg? You have to show the the value, but at the same time, like be realistic, right? Yeah, and and you know, I came from the software space, and it, it might sound um, it might sound very basic to say it, but it's it's a realization that took us a while to get to, is that hardware doesn't scale the same way as software. Software is incredibly easy to scale. Also, kind of once you developed it, your your gross margins on every sale are you know, very close to a hundred, um, but hardware doesn't it's not procured the same way it, it doesn't scale the same way um there's a lot more fixed costs that are associated with it so you know the, the thinking i had and a lot of other people i'm familiar with including a lot of the vcs that invested in the industry of expecting to see that software hockey stick growth uh in a hardware and, and manufacturing space that's obviously not realistic. And I think a lot of companies need to, you know, a lot of investors, a lot of companies are calibrating uh, their expectations now accordingly. That obviously excludes the kind of bubble we had three years ago when companies were spacking right and left based on uh, unrealistic expectations. But, um, but I think by and large, there's a lot more maturity in the industry than there used to be. And as you think about it, um, what's the, as you look at companies, um, one of the other pieces in terms of the financials is how people build their teams and kind of, um, I come from the engineering side, so I can look at technology and see the engineering part, but like a, from where you sit and looking at the company kind of top down, what are some of the important concepts around team that you look for in terms of roles and how people are managing and think about strategy and tactical and engineering stuff? Like, how, how do you think about that? What's your perspective? Yeah, I think a lot of the companies in the industry and, uh, you know, certainly a lot of the companies I'm working with uh, nowadays as an advisor is that they're extremely technology focused. So uh, you have a lot of engineers that are developing incredible technologies and they're very passionate about their technologies, but um, they have a bit of a blind spot in terms of how do I make money out of it? Like, What's a sustainable business model? Uh, for my company, and um, and sometimes you fall in love with your uh, with your invention and and your technology, and you're not really thinking about but but does somebody actually need it? Is somebody willing to pay money for it? Just because it's a different way to make a part doesn't make it better. And with with that. Um... You're not at Stratasys anymore. So like what after Stratasys, like what was your next <laughs> kind of progression in your career path? Yeah. Um, so first of all, for the last year, I've been uh, for the first time uh, ever in my life, not a W-2 uh, employee on a payroll. 
And the last role uh, that enabled me now to be independent was managing LM Additive at Xerox. So uh, this is about four or five years ago, uh, Xerox approached me because they were looking to commercialize their, it's called non-core assets, things that are not part of the of the Xerox core business. And as they were mapping all the different assets that they have through the different research centers they had, like Park, Palo Alto Research Center, which was obviously kind of a legendary research center for the last 50 years. Um, XRCC, which is the materials one in Canada, and the Webster Accelerator, which is more focused on hardware in upstate New York. Um, what they saw is that they have a lot of innovations relating to 3D printing, uh, a lot of patents. There were uh, also the Vader folks um, that were part of, in the web, of the Webster Accelerator up in New York in terms of the hardware with the liquid metal jetting technology that, uh, that they've developed. And Xerox thought, oh, can we actually build this into a company? Can we make a business out of it? Um, and that's the part that I joined. And we essentially formed a company called LM Additive, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of Xerox. Um, started kind of taking some assets uh, from different parts of, uh, of Xerox, primarily the liquid metal jetting technology into it. And then building a strategy, building a plan, like which mark, which products are we going to market? How is this going to look? Who are we going to sell it to? What could be the financials? And you know what could be the exit path? Because at the end of the day, um, you know Xerox really wanted what they wanted to achieve is to build a few of these let's call it non-core companies, and we built a few at the same time. We built one in uh, in clean tech, one in IoT. LM Additive, which I was in charge for in 3D printing. And the idea was, okay, let's build each of them, make them into companies that can kind of stand on our own two feet and then spin them off and sell them. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, after a, a very long story, but we sold uh, LM Additive into Aditech. And so did all the other startups and, and the research center. So now kind of Xerox and it's, is really focusing on its core. And the nice thing about LM was, kind of being a general manager, so the CEO of uh, that subsidiary, um, you you really get to, if we were talking about seeing the big picture and getting engaged in all the different activities, I kind of feel like everything I've done in my career till then gave me a little piece of the pie. So if I started in a technology unit in the military and the Air Force in Israel, okay, so I've done a little bit of technology, a bit of strategy, corp dev, product management, sales, and then coming to a GM role is, okay, now here is how all these different pieces that I've done in my career come together. Because as a GM, you're, you know, I wasn't the finance person, but I managed the finance person. I wasn't uh, a technology person, but I managed, you know, the R&D and engineering leaders. And, uh, you know, I'm not a salesperson, but I managed the go to the sales and marketing folks as well. And so with that, I mean, what was the biggest thing you learned as in that role? Like what was, what sticks out as a, a kind of a big learning that you'll take with whatever you're kind of doing next? Ooh, that my old boss was right about so many things. It's, it's a horrible thing. It's like, you know, you find out as you get older that your parents were right about a lot of things. So I had, uh, I had incredible bosses along my career that taught me a lot of lessons. And it's not until that you get to that kind of position of, of the GM and being the decision maker that you see how many of these things are true. So it wasn't about, I think, learning something new as much as about 
um, really understanding a lot of the things that I, I saw on the sidelines. So um, I, I think, you know, one is, you know, the need to focus, right? It's so easy to get distracted with ad hoc opportunities, especially when you're building a startup and, and, and you're really just kind of looking to make that sale or you're looking to get that, that little breakthrough. And there's so many customers that, um, can derail you uh, from your focus and what you need to do. Um, obviously, I learned a ton about hiring, firing, um, you know, building a team, sustaining a team, and also shutting off uh, um, lower performers in the in the team. Um, and and I think lastly, and this is, might be a, a unique learning, I learned that building a startup in a corporate is you're not really a startup. Uh, you're still part of a corporate. And while it carries a lot of advantages, I, I don't. I think I underappreciated before joining LM just how many challenges that brings with it. Like in terms of process, like overhead or like not being able to move fast or what? what get yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very evident now that, you know, I'm working uh, as an advisor with a few startups. You know, I... I can tell them, okay, so one of them should do a great example. One of them did a press release before Formnext and, you know, it was just me and the CEO. The CEO basically wrote it up. I gave him, you know, some pointers and okay, that's it. This is the press release. Let's go. Versus if you're trying to do a press release as a startup, but you're part of a corporate, there's about 12 different approvers that you need and, you know, oh, he's out of office. She needs to be, you know, grabbed on the phone and nudged. Uh, and everybody has his own red lines and obviously they're contradicting each other. So even something as straightforward as just, you know, saying, oh, we have a, a printer out there in the market, which is 20 minutes work with that startup and, you know, just a short ping pong between me and the CEO. We said, okay, this, this looks good. All right, let's send it out versus a process that takes you, um, weeks, if not even a couple months and a significant amount of effort. Got it. And so now you've been kind of doing your own consulting, working with a number of different companies. Um, what's exciting? Like, what are you excited about on the horizon here? Like both in terms of your own career and maybe even the industry and kind of the, um, what's coming over that next, next hill or next mountain. Yeah. So I think the thing that excites me about the industry is that I'm, I'm really seeing it maturing. Uh, and by maturing, I mean, really understanding that it's not about just I developed a cool printer or a novel way to make something. You really have to have a use case behind it. You really have to know what you're targeting in terms of parts. You really have to build a business case for the customer because, you know, otherwise everybody's going to continue to sell the onesies, twosies to, you know, a few of the research centers and the universities, uh, the ones that what I call, they buy the one of each. And, uh, but, but you're not really going to scale and certainly you're not going to make money. So I'm seeing in the conversations with um, with founders and CEOs and obviously in the conversations with investors, a lot more emphasis on, on the monetization, on the business case, uh, on the go-to-market aspects and not just on the technology. Do you see any particular industries that are adopting additive or applications more so than they were two, three, four years ago? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's starting to kind of scale across the board. Certainly defense is the one that I think in the short term, uh, kind of, you know, next two or three years is the most amount of money to be made, especially in the U.S., but I think that also holds true globally. The combination of the vulnerabilities in the supply chains that COVID exposed and then top it off with everything that's going on in the world with the geopolitical tensions, whether if it's with China, Russia, uh, et cetera, really fleshed out the need to, let's say, even if you're not going to reshore all of manufacturing, you want to at least have the ability to produce parts locally on your own and kind of have more resiliency into your supply chain. And that really lends itself to additive manufacturing. So if you look at the DOD budget uh, for 2024, and if you just look more broadly at the statements that are being made in the US by the White House, um, there's gonna be a lot more money in the DOD, in the, in, the, in the DOE, in the Department of Energy and the Department of Commerce flowing into additive in the next couple of years. And then in industry, I think, you know, as the technologies are improving both in the quality, but also in the throughput and their economics, I do think additive is going to go, you know, today the sweet spot of additive, we always used to say is uh, low volume, high value. I think we're moving more and more into medium volume and, and, and medium vo uh, value, uh, which opens a ton more applications. I don't think we're going to be seeing additive being used to produce millions of the same part. But I mean, we're going from hundreds to thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands in certain cases. And do you see the um, the evolution of the the companies tracking with that? I mean, even in in your case, right? You're working with a number of different companies. You have your own company, kind of doing all of this. Like, how do you kind of keep on top of all of the different changes and like your pulse in the industry? Well, like, what are what are you doing in terms of? Is it talking to people? Is it going to conferences? Like, how do you kind of get your mental model of how the additive world is going? Yeah, so it's it's all of the above. And in that regard, I have to say, it's pretty nice not being tied to one company because now I can do, you know, LinkedIn reach outs to people from industry influencers to users of AM to non-users of AM that maybe should be using AM and also all the technology companies and I can do it under a very, uh, you know, neutral, not trying to sell you a printer here or convince you to invest in anything. I really just want to have a conversation so I can be more educated on the industry. So I'm having a lot of phone calls and Zooms with a lot of people from the industry and then definitely a lot of going into conferences. But what I did change is instead of just going to additive manufacturing conferences, so you know, Formnext, AMUG, et cetera, I started going, uh, and I'll do so more in 2024, to non-additive conferences. Uh, around manufacturing, defense, supply chain, um, and kind of try to tap outside the usual suspect pool and see what it will take for them. Because um, additive manufacturing today is what 1% of the global manufacturing pie is kind of the number everybody's using. So that's great. That means 99% are not using it. Um, I want to talk to those 99% and understand what are the barriers, what's missing, and how the technologies that are here today can overcome them. Awesome. So just last couple of questions. Uh, um, 
going into the new year, what's kind of one thing that's super exciting to you, um, either personally in kind of you building your kind of consulting offering or in the industry, like what, what things kind of top of mind for you in 2024? Yeah, I think this is uh, the first year and God knows how long that I'm not closing the book, so to speak, on a fiscal year. Uh, so actually enjoying, you know, the, the Christmas and New Year uh, time will be a, a nice uh, a nice refresher. But uh, but on a more serious note, um, really, I am seeing, uh, again, a lot more interesting, more mature, sober discussions around additive manufacturing. Um, and so I think looking into 2024, I'm very optimistic about a portion of the companies and a portion of the technologies, certainly not everybody, but I think there's a lot of exciting things that are coming in 2024. Awesome. And so more of a fun question that I've ended a lot of podcasts with. So what's a favorite book or uh, inspiration that you've taken in terms of your career and um, that you might want to share with others as they um, kind of embark on their own additive or non-additive career? I think Crossing the Chasm is one of the must-read books for people who haven't. This is about how do you take a product like 3D printing, for example, that's, uh, let's call it, is still in the early adopter phase and you move it into mainstream uh and and actually one of the versions of of the book not the original one but one of the releases has a chapter they've added a chapter referring to 3d printing uh so i think that's a that's a great read and then on the startup uh front if somebody hadn't read the classics of uh of the hard thing about hard things or uh zero to one i would definitely recommend putting them on your list awesome well, thanks so much, Tale. Great to talk to you. Um, we look forward to to seeing you at at shows or wherever it may be, not additive or additive in the coming years. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.